0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Thank you for tuning in to this special edition of Confessing Our Hope. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast. But in this edition, I'm going to be turning it over to my good friend, Pastor Sean Morris of Westminster PCA in Roanoke, Virginia. Sean is also the Academic Dean of the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education, otherwise known as Bright. GPTS and Bright partnered together this summer to host a panel discussion and lunch at the PCA General Assembly. And what follows is a recording of that panel discussion with four seasoned pastors from across the PCA. Without further ado, I invite you to continue listening to what I promise will be an eminently useful and interesting discussion. Thanking you all for being here, and if we'll just pass this mic around, most
1: of the view in the room will know these fine gentlemen. But just in case we have some visitors who may not know these gentlemen, would you introduce yourselves and tell us about where you're serving?
2: I'm Richard Davies, and I am in Metairie, Louisiana. I've been pastoring Grace Presbyterian Church.
3: I'm Roland Barnes, and um, I'm the senior pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Statesboro, Georgia.
4: Carl Robbins, pastor of Woodford Road Presbyterian Church. I'm by far the youngest minister up here, and uh, Dr. Piper asked me to represent the hipster contingent.
5: (laughs) I don't know what to say after that. Bob Davis, uh, I'm actually younger than he is.
1: I'm at Drapers Valley Presbyterian Church in Draper, Virginia. What we wanted to do today, friends, is to invite these men to come up here, and we just want to hear from them. We want to hear from their wis- from their wisdom, we want to glean from them, because these men have been serving long-term in one location, in one pulpit for many, many years. And so selfishly, I know we younger elders in the room want to benefit from that by asking them some questions. And so we've curated a number of questions that we want to ask some of them uh, for the whole group together, but also some of you individually, given your unique experiences. So just as I address you, just pass the microphone back and forth. or. If I address all of you, y'all can share and, and take turns speaking, and so we'll we'll dive right in and we want to hear from you. So this is this first question is for all of you. And from an informal survey that we've been we've been given, it seems many young men in the PCA at least believe that they will take a call and they will serve a congregation for five to seven years or so before moving on to another congregation. That seems to be the self-perception. If this is the general tendency. And realizing that none of you wishes to absolutize a preference, what do you think about this general trend? I guess I'll go first.
3: <laughs> um, if it's a if it's a trend and a and a sort of a, a a preconceived notion that you sort of take with you before you enter into a pastorate, that I, I I don't think it's healthy. Um, I generally think that. That you should enter into a pastorate with the idea that you might stay there for the rest of your life. Uh, I know that God does move people around. Um, he hasn't seen fit to move me around, um, but I know, I know He does do that. For and there are legitimate reasons for people moving uh, around. But I think that j- when I what I observe about churches that have pastors that come for three to five years and then move is um, it's a difficult. Uh, situation for the church because they have a pastor who says, "Let's go this way," and for a little while they they need to they need to to um, learn to trust him. He they, he needs to learn about them, and then they said decide, "Yes, we're going to follow you," and then he leaves. And then there's a a year or so in between to, before the next guy comes and he says, "No," <clears throat> uh, the last guy said, "Go this way." Now what we need to do is go this way. Maybe not 180 degrees, but maybe just a a little bit different direction. Uh, And then the same thing happens over again. So I think uh, churches have difficulty sometimes in terms of their leadership because it's not consistent,
2: not long term. So I think it's not not a good trend. Hmm. I've been in my church for 43 years, same church. Organizing pastor. No, please don't. And when I went to, I went to Reform Seminary, the only campus back in 1976. And Dr. Strong was my homiletics professor. Dr. Smith taught me very well also. And he said, when you go to your first pastor, act like it's the only one you'll ever have. And you pour your life into it. And I did. And I've been very happy ever since. The people persevere with me. I persevere with them. Doesn't mean it's all perfect. We had trials and blessings, but I just felt that's where God wanted me to be. And it's easy to quit and say, I'm out of here. Many, many times I've got to quit. And sometimes as young pastors, when you confront circumstance, you say, that's it, I'm out of here. But when you stay and work through problems, there's a real blessing for you as well as to the church to see your love for them and that you persevere with them in hard times as well as in good times. I only have 38 years,
5: and um, I was thinking about quitting, but now I want him.
1: <laughs>
5: I'm positively peripatetic compared to those guys. Uh, uh, my first church was 26 years. I've only been in about 11 and a half where I am. But I do think there is a possibility of change, because I've changed, uh, to move to another place. Uh, church, but I think the primary reason with that would be for you as a young man to receive further training OJT on the job. Uh, As an associate and as an assistant, you go there for a time to further develop your skills, but that that would be the primary purpose for a shorter term, Uh, but I do agree that you should go with the idea of staying uh, for the rest of your life. I'm, with, I'm not opposed to men
4: moving and taking other calls. What I am opposed to is ladder climbing. I, I don't think I can remember a time when somebody took a call and were deeply convinced that God was calling them to a church half the size of theirs, or, or half the influence of theirs, and I think that's really kind of the unspoken issue so far, is the issue of ladder climbing and viewing the ministry in a mercenary fashion like so many other vocations, and using words, if I use this word please come up and smack me, if you use the word like career in in the ministry uh i am just i'm fundamentally opposed to to ladder climbing
1: that's good and wonderful insight as a follow-up to that some of y'all have already touched on this a little bit but did you go into your call where you ended up being long-term expecting it to be a long-term call for you and was there a was there a magic moment, for, for, for want of a better word, when you realized that you were going to remain in that congregation for the long haul? Or what were the factors that helped you realize, I'm not, I'm not going to be taken off here anytime soon. I'm committed to this for a while. My conviction
3: was the same as Richard's. Uh that when I took the call, to, uh, I went to, to plant a church, and the idea was that I would be there for the rest of my life, and I have been, so he's been 43 years. You planted that church as well, right? When I was 15. When you were 15? Yeah. <laughs> the, re- the requirement's not, not, not too stringent back then, I see. Yeah. <laughs> I think
4: that moment came for for us. We had uh, been at Woodruff Road in our first um, eight years. Uh, We've been at Woodruff Road for 19 and a half years. I always tell people it's been the best 11 years of my life. But the first eight years were incredibly hard. We had all kinds of difficulties, theological, relational, all of these things. And I think the real issue, the real turning point for us came, and maybe somebody will give you good counsel like this if you're struggling right now, but my dear brother, That Terry Johnson, uh, he knew that we were about to take a call to go someplace else. And Terry said, Carl, why are you leaving? You just about got the swamp drained. And he said, you've, you've fought almost all of the battles that need to be fought. If you take this call and go where you're thinking of going, you're looking at eight more years of battles. Mm-hmm. He said, start enjoying the fruit of your labors now and stay. And so uh, we're shocked every day that we're there. We've been there 19 and a half years, and we're always kind of amazed that we wake up and we're still there. I'm not really like these brothers in terms of being a long-term person. We just kind of backed into being it would Road for years.
5: Uh, when I went to my first call, I was planning to stay there a few years. That was the norm, and uh, actually, we started work uh, towards a PhD in church history. Uh, but it was soon clear that that was not my gifting, but pastoring was. So it was sort of a uh, unveiling of my gifting and calling about year five, and then we just never thought about moving. So.
1: Dick, this next question is for you. We want to ask a little bit about you and your particular experience. Your congregation, and this was years ago now, but still, was greatly affected by the events of Hurricane Katrina. Tell us about that, and how has your church rebounded, and perhaps ways it has not rebounded, and tell us how your commitment to longevity in that congregation, by the grace of God, as best as you can ascertain, how has that longevity contributed to the congregation's stability?
2: Uh, Before the Sunday before Katrina, we had an attendance of 180 people We were out of our church a month. When we got back in October, we had 80 people. Uh, We lost a lot of people during Hurricane Katrina. I'd never evacuated before, but we left for Katrina. We came back, didn't know if we'd have a house, didn't know if we had a church, didn't know who would be back, who wouldn't. Our church didn't flood, our house didn't flood, but many of the members did, and many of them just said, I can't stay here, and they left. So uh, we lost our youth director, most of the youth group. It was just a different church. When we went back home, I told my wife, we have two choices. We can either quit or keep going. So we decided to see God rebuild Grace Presbyterian. But what happened was, in 2008, a charismatic church in the western, well, eastern part of the city flooded in Katrina. Their congregation had moved different parts of the city. Many went to the western part where our church was. And so they were meeting in a daycare center where our church was meeting. We built the building we had. They came to us sight unseen and said, would you sell us your building? And they said, well, we're not thinking of moving. And they said, well, we want to stay out here. God doesn't want us to build a building. Would you sell us yours? I said, well, you think God wants us to build a building? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, well, have it appraised. We had it appraised at $1.7 million. They gave us $3 million cash that we would sell our building to them. Mm-hmm. And we did. So we moved four miles away, built a nice building, more property in our city, property is very premium, and it did not magically increase the membership in the church, but what it did was solidify the people that we had. that rallied around that and said, this is what God wants us to do. So the church is in a good place. We have about 100 members now, uh, very committed, godly people. So I would say Katrina was a mixed bag. It had a downside, but in every downside, you trust God, what do you want us to do? And that's what God showed us to do. And when the storm hit, I said I just don't feel that it's time for me to abandon the people. So I feel like my second pastorate started in October two thousand five. And so I have in a sense a different congregation. So I can really say I've had two pastorates because it really turned out that way. And so it was the a matter of saying, I cannot abandon these people when they've many of them lost everything they own. And so I felt a real rallying cry to be around them and to shoulder this burden with them. And in a sense, I still feel that way because Katrina is very much in people's minds. And we fear every August and September, is it going to happen again? And I just tell them we have to trust the sovereignty of God. He's blessed us and taken care of us, and we trust him to do it again.
1: It's tremendous. Thank you, Dick. Uh, this next question is for Bob and Carl in particular. Now... The three of us, we've spoken about this in the past. There are things when a man takes a new call, there are things about a congregation that he would probably like to change, perhaps practices in worship and things of that nature. What advice would you give regarding bringing about change and perhaps avoiding changing things too quickly? Do you have examples of things that worked or things that did not work in your experience? And again, what factor does commitment to a local long-term longevity, how does that factor into that, that strategy? Uh, let me
5: explain. The first church I went to out of seminary uh, was a United Church of Christ church. Uh, that's one of the most liberal denominations in America. Not Church of Christ, United Church, UCC. Uh, I'm not going to answer that questions. I doubt it. Uh, they are. Uh, we used to call them affectionately Unitarians, considering Christ. Uh, but I don't think they're considering Christ anymore. But so the amount of change that needed to take place was phenomenal. Uh, there were three or four believers by my count when I first went there. Uh, that church today is a PCA church. Uh, so it took a long time to move it to that, so the changes were at every level, every category. Uh, I learned very quickly, you don't institute change, you don't declare change, you preach, teach, and let the Holy Spirit through the Word of God bring about the change. We did some things very poorly uh, early on, and uh, we learned hard lessons from that, uh, but uh, change is slow particularly when it's that dramatic, and so we need to allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to to bring that about in people's hearts. People left, of course. Uh, Amazingly, people died. Um, We had eight funerals one year that were very significant for our church. You don't pray for that, (laughs) but it brought about change. But change must move slowly, and therefore the necessity of a long-term commitment there, because people don't change quickly. And when you're, when you're moving into a new church, remember, even though they may be theologically wrong in this thinking, that's their church. And so when you're coming in as the new guy, one fellow said to me, I've been here through eight pastors. I'll be here after you're gone. Uh, well, that's not true. Actually, he left before I did. But uh, if you stay long term, you'll see change. But you can't institute it. You can't declare it. You have to uh, work very, very slowly.
4: I think on the issues of change. You got to think about non-negotiables up front first. Uh, if you're a guy who has non-negotiables or not, I I do. I have 16 of them. I have a file on them. And most of them are reactionary. Most of them are quirky. Uh, but uh, in terms of if you're even going to go to a place, knowing can I go and like some of my non-negotiables are very limited congregational meetings. A good year at Woodruff Road is when we don't have one. And another one is a commitment to a shepherding model of the eldership. Another is a commitment to 52 weeks a year, a.m. and p.m. worship. Another is is a demonstrated practice and track record of church discipline. Another, which is huge because I've served two congregations that didn't have this, and this is why I hold this as a, as a non-negotiable, is complete financial transparency. Uh, another is no fundraisers, no capital campaigns, no red thermometers. Another is no fudging on gender roles. I have more. They get quirkier as it goes along. But I think the issue that is, is important, all I say this is when you're considering a call and you're you're thinking about practices to institute or not, is I think it's incumbent upon a minister to be completely honest about the changes he wants to make. And so before we took the call to go to Las Vegas, sit. down, down with the leadership and I said brothers uh, uh, my wife and I are disposed to come here for a lot of reasons but there's some worship practices that we're, we really just can't abide and so I, I need to tell you that because my intention is to change those the first Sunday we're here and then to have what we think is a wise and pastoral strategy over the next Two years. It's not two weeks, two years to preach, teach, model, explain. And here's where we want to be in two years. If you guys can go for that, we would like to take the call. They discussed it. They said, we think that's reasonable. But over those two years, teach, preach, model. And so I think it's it's vital and incumbent upon a minister who's going to go someplace to be honest and say, here's where I want to go. Don't don't have a hidden agenda. Don't spring it on somebody. Likewise, when we were going to come to Woodruff Road, I said to the pulpit committee again, I'm inclined to come, but there's some things that would really have to be in place. I want to be honest about that. One is you have 150 kids under the age of 18. This is then. And you don't have a youth minister. I said... Uh, I think it's, it's vital. I, I was the worst youth minister in the PCA when I did youth ministry, so you don't want me doing it. And you, you'll soon not have any kids if I'm doing youth ministry. <clears throat> but I said, if y'all would agree to hire a youth minister within one year of me coming here, I think it's important to set d- dates and times and be real clear on that. So if you would agree to hire a youth minister within one year, I think I'd be inclined to come. Had one man on the search committee said, Carl, just come on and we'll work it out. And I said, I did not fall off the turnip truck yesterday. So I think it's, it's clear to have those things stated, time frames and all that, so that nobody can say, you didn't shoot straight with us. But to be very honest about all those things.
3: That that can also be considered a strategy for staying where you are. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This, uh, this next question is for you, Roland. There are obvious and public ways that a minister, again, by the grace of God, can influence and shape the culture of a congregation, preaching and pulpit ministry, teaching in Christian education settings, moderating a session. But what are some of the unseen ways that you have noticed over the long term that have positively impacted the life of your congregation that men perhaps don't often think about and perhaps things we disdain too easily? Mm-hmm. Um, I,
3: I, that, that was a very interesting question that you came up with. How did you come up with that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it a long time. Um, The the best thing I come up with, I guess, has to do with just the way you uh, sort of privately and personally present yourself and engage people um, on a on a one on one basis. And uh, uh, another thing uh, that I think is really crucial is uh, the practice of hospitality, having people in your home. Um, You know, that that is one of the requirements of the office of elder is to to be hospitable. Um, but it's a, it's a very much a neglected practice, I think, in the life of the church, uh, not just in the life of the of the pastor, but also just the congregation as well. We, we tend toward more individualism and more private society sort of perspective so that we don't have people in our homes the way it used to be, I think, maybe in days gone by. So I think that's uh, maybe undervalued. Um, From the time that we hit the ground in Statesboro, we, every Lord's Day, have somebody in our home. We try to focus on visitors. um, So a lot of times visitors are shocked that we invite them to our house, but they get to know us. And my wife has real strong gifts of hospitality, but they get to know us in a different way. They see a different perspective on uh, a pastor's life, uh, more, you know, the regular guy as over against um maybe in the the way that they might view somebody from a distance and i think that's true about members of your congregation having them in in your home as well so i think probably that's the thing that i would say mostly is neglected mostly undervalued but i think of great benefit if
1: a if a minister will commit himself to that this next question is for Carl. Carl, you serve in a part of the country where there is a stronger concentration of a PCA presence there in the, the Greenville, South Carolina area. Uh, we can think of other parts of the country, places like St. Louis or Jackson in central Mississippi. There's a, a good number of PCA and other reformed congregations in various pockets. But we might have some men in this room who are serving in places where there's a dearth, there's a lack of reformed witness. You think of the West Coast. Do you think of Nevada, for instance, and other parts where there just isn't an abundant reformed or PCA presence. Any advice for these kind of men who might be in isolated or lonely situations?
4: We served in Las Vegas where the closest PCA church was 224 miles from our front porch. We were the only PCA church in the state of Nevada. We were the only Calvinistic church in a city of 1.4 million people. Um, So we were sorely tested in our commitment to connectionalism and Presbyterianism. Uh, All the other 15 churches in our presbytery were in Los Angeles. Those other 15 churches had a weekly prayer meeting for pastors on Monday morning. That meant if I were going to make that, I had to leave at 4 a.m. to go over there on Monday mornings and Monday mornings at 4 a.m. just don't usually work so uh, what that meant was is I think if, you're, if it's going to work and you're in one of those what our Book of Church Order calls destitute areas you have to work hard to be a Presbyterian so I served on all the committees that I could in Presbytery certainly was involved in General Assembly and I had to do this to remind myself and my elders that we are not independents. One of the one of the glorious things about being in Greenville is there's 16 or 17 PCA churches, an OP congregation, ARP churches, independent Reformed, Reformed Baptist churches, and so fellowship is just kind of this embarrassing riches of, of, uh, of fellowship, but I think if you're going to serve in a destitute area, you have to be hyper-intentional. It's very easy. We know a lot of guys who are in the Pacific Northwest and the Northeast who it's very easy to just become a functional independent.
1: Thank you for that. This next question, this is for all of you gentlemen. Um, Many men aspire to be known as excellent expositors. There's entire conferences dedicated to such a thing. There aren't conferences, at least that I'm aware, that celebrate revered parliamentarians. Nevertheless, we see from examples like you men, or men like David Coffin, Fred Greco, our own Dr. Joseph Papa, who's here in the room with us this morning, or this afternoon rather, Uh, we see from these examples how crucial it is to have a serious and dedicated involvement in the courts of the church. Uh, A dedicated ecclesiological ministry is less flashy, perhaps, than a dedicated expository ministry. But we're sitting here at General Assembly, perhaps we should think of being better churchmen and parliamentarians. So how can we do so, and what advice would you give in that regard?
2: Well, i just say that uh, if... I'm a Christian first, a Presbyterian second, and we participate in the courts of the church. From our session to Presbytery, I come to General Assembly. My elders usually cannot come because of work, like many, many men. But I just think it's important for us to participate in the work of our church and to be involved in it, because this is our church. And uh, when we come to General Assembly, I know sometimes I come to General Assembly and every year say, why did I come? But um, (laughs) I know it's important to come to General Assembly. Uh, just to have our, our voice known as to how the direction of our church. If we don't come, then, you know, you know, things may go the way we didn't want to. We have to come and vote our convictions. So I'm not sure about parliamentarianism, but I think it's very important we participate in our courts. So.
3: Well, if you don't like um, uh, parliamentary rules, try having a presbytery without them. Uh-huh. <laughs> They, they exist to protect um, the rights of each individual to be able to speak and be heard. So it's those who are most rigorous to follow those procedures who protect uh, the freedom of all of us to be able to participate and speak. So, you know, I think if, one thing I would advise, I think it's, it is important to learn to be a good parliamentarian uh, so you have good order and so everyone is able to speak Uh, without having to scream or yell or get angry so everyone is able to be heard because what we believe as Presbyterians is that when we sit together as a court uh, still Christ is the head and king of his church so as we open our Bibles and consider uh, any particular question before us and we search the scriptures as elders and then we vote and speak with one voice uh, we believe that Christ himself is governing his church So how we come to that place of being able to hear one another and understand what the Scripture says and how it bears upon the question before us and come to a decision really has everything to do with the rule of Christ in His church. So I would encourage you to learn basic parliamentary procedure. I mean, you can um, so you can conduct that business in that way. And also, um, we have some good parliamentarians in our um, in our courts that you can listen to and observe and watch. You can learn by observation. as they uh, make points and as they they speak uh, clearly and precisely to a, to a matter, uh, and, and that's very beneficial to us. In fact, it's, as we've heard earlier, in one of the speeches for the uh, for the moderator, uh, the, um, although the, the the nominee about whom this speech was made did not prevail, in other words, in other words, but but it was it was spoken of as being sheer joy. All of you sign off on that, right? (laughs) Every time David Coffin speaks, that's the feeling I have. Pure joy.
4: I'm the weakest Presbyterian or parliamentarian up here, and one of the things I've always tried to do, and the Lord has blessed me, that typically with good parliamentarians as ruling elders, our clerk is Frederick Marcinac, and so that makes session meetings delightful because he keeps us on track. I've always had some good ruling elders. If you're a weak parliamentarian, you want to have a, a good clerk sitting right next to you, and that's the case that I've had. The Lord's
5: blessed us that way. If you don't like Presbyterian polity, try doing without it. Uh, I started as a Congregationalist and trying to uh, bring a church out of liberalism into conservative reformed thinking without a Presbyterian form of government, without good parliamentary procedure uh, is very, very difficult. So after being in the church about 20 years, I became a Presbyterian serving out of bounds with the OPC. Uh, And it was a great joy then to finally come to this church in Draper and to be really a full-time Presbyterian. Uh, It's very, very difficult. We might not like what we do. We might not like the formalism. But try being a Congregationalist for a while. You're not going to like that either
3: just one more comment uh sometimes we get frustrated because the wheels uh, grind so slowly and sometimes almost come to a you know a screeching halt um, but i think there is a sacred clumsiness to presbyterianism no one is able to run away with the train it takes a process that's very carefully laid out uh, and then eventually we may get to the place uh, that we need to be um, if we're we'll
1: trust the procedure Again, a question for all of you gentlemen. Most of you men have what we would call a wider ministry. Not a celebrity ministry, but a wider ministry. A ministry of God's word that extends beyond the walls of your specific congregations. So tell us how that came about, and is that something that you would encourage other brothers as worth pursuing? And again, because we want to tie this into a a long-term pulpit call, does that commitment to local longevity help factor into your decision to take on these other opportunities?
2: About five years ago, there was an ad in our paper, the Times Picayune, about a youth pastor who had done something terrible with a girl in his youth group. And when I looked at that, I didn't look at it in horror and disgust. I said, Well, you know, we're vulnerable pastors. That could have been me. I went to Twin Lakes, and Mark Casson was there, who does our metanoia ministry. And he said, Write him. And I said, I've never done anything like that. He said, Write him. And I did. I have had a four and a half year ministry with the same man in jail. It's expanded my horizons on what it's like to minister to people in jail, to go to the jail and visit somebody, to go to court when they're sentenced, and really stretched me out of my comfort zone. I went to my session before I did it and I said this is a burden that I have to minister to a man that probably lost every friend he ever had. So that has taken on something different for me, a different dimension. It takes time it takes effort but yet it has grown me a lot in my faith to understand again how to pray for people who are incarcerated so that was something that came my way and I'm thankful for, for Mark and our denomination who encouraged me to do it so this is one thing that I've taken on and, and, and still administering to him
3: I think I was sort of propelled into a wider ministry by my involvement in, our, in my presbytery um... After not being in States for very long, our presbytery, which was probably two-thirds of the whole state of Georgia, was was divided in half. And then I became the, the chairman of the Mission to North America Committee of our new presbytery, Savannah River Presbytery. So I've been involved in church plants from from the church plant that, that I started, and now we're in our ninth church plant within our, the bounds of our presbytery um involved in some other ones before that That were in the 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 the, the the presbytery that preceded us. So that's propelled me into wider ministry, uh, definitely not celebrity ministry, but it has propelled me into wider ministry as we've sought to plant churches throughout throughout our presbytery's bound strategically. And the other thing probably is my commitment to, um, to world missions, and I think there's a question, something about that later on, so I'll defer to that, but I'm getting ready to take my 25th trip to Peru.
4: There are wider ministries I think it's a good thing to pursue, and there are wider ministries that need to pursue you. Uh, I've had some speaking and writing ministries. I've never pursued them. They come to me. I don't chase those. I think it's unseemly. There's one wider ministry that I have pursued, and that's pro-life ministry. I've been involved in that anywhere we've gone. I've served as the chairman of the board of different crisis pregnancy centers where we've lived. I continue to serve um, the Piedmont Women's Center, which is the lar- I think it's the largest crisis, center, crisis pregnancy center in America, I do the biblical and theological training for the volunteers or help with that. That's the only wider ministry I've ever intentionally pursued.
5: When I was in New England, as we were slowly renewing a a very, very dead, moribund church, uh, opportunities came as we were being somewhat successful to help other churches do the same thing. And so across many denominations uh, in New England in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000, I would often be asked to help other churches, how do we get from here to there? And we started uh, organizations, uh, one called the New England Reform Fellowship, uh, to help other young churches do the same thing. Uh, when I was in New England in 1982, I didn't know any other reformed people in the whole of New England when I first moved there. Uh, I'm so excited about what the PCA is doing, planting in Boston, many, many churches. Uh, of course, our own church became. PCA, there's a lot of great movement there. So that became a wider ministry there. Uh, Now in Draper, it's more missions. Uh, I'm making my 11th trip to Africa.
4: Right on.
1: We're running, we're running close on time and we have a few housekeeping items that we want to tend to and we need to get back to the work of the church so let me ask this one last question just by way of closing and say if you men have the, the magic ability to go back in time and speak your current self could speak to your early ministry self you're, you're still wet behind the ears pastor self if you could give yourself a piece of advice what might that be be more patient
2: Because I think you need a lot of patience when you minister to people to love them, to care about them. Sometimes ministers don't get treated fairly, that's why we would say that. When sometimes people can be inconsiderate to you, and if you did the same thing to them, they'd be appalled. Sometimes you hear things that are not going to be complimentary about you, about your preaching, different things about your style... And yet this is where God puts you in ministries like that. Sometime our sin comes out in the pew, and we have to learn how to love the people God put into our life. And so if I could go back, I could see mistakes I have made. I said things I shouldn't have said. So I'm still there. uh, They loved me, and I loved them. But I think that there are things that seminary doesn't teach you, just about life and things that you're going to learn about people and just how to say I need to, to pray for them, Encourage them, work with them, love them where they are, and I've seen great fruit in that area in you know many years in the same parish, to see God work in people. So I I would say I'd go back up to tell myself in many ways keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I agree
3: with that. I think also though if I look at myself I think that um, I I almost live exclusively in the future. I don't live much in the past at all. So I don't really think much about what happened. I'm always thinking about what hasn't happened yet. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not commending it. Um, But also because of that, I don't even really much enjoy the present. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I almost enjoy planning something more than I do actually doing it. So um, I think I would tell my younger self to, to relax and enjoy the present Uh, There are good things that happen. Yes, there are many trials and difficulties, but there are things that that God does and blesses us, and we, we we should revel in those things and enjoy His blessing to us. I don't think I spent near enough time doing that.
4: As a young minister, I didn't recognize those things that I would be doing over and over and over again. Some of these things that I would mention, I've done 50, 100 times, and I'll probably do 50 more. And I didn't develop them well. It took me several years to get the practice. So I would say if you're a young man just about ready to start ministry, there are a handful of things you need to carry around in your bag with you at all times. You need to have a good intro class new member class visitor class whatever you call it because you'll do it over and over again i told folks at would refer the last time i taught now it's gotten better because my colleague dan dodds teaches the class so it's much sharper but the last time i taught it i think i told folks this was the 49th circuit of an intro class i've done if you're going to do something 49 times it's worth preparing early on in your ministry of an officer training class i've done over 20 rounds not 20 classes 20 rounds of officer training classes you should develop one of those early on um, vital prayer meetings I went to prayer meetings as a kid growing up I didn't know how to lead one but you need to have a good strategy on how to lead prayer meetings and do it 52 weeks a year and then be vital and not boring and lifeless liturgical leadership if you don't own Terry Johnson's book leading in worship go to the bookstore today and buy a copy buy two copies one for the house and one for the office and, and I know so many guys who just are awful at leading worship and Terry's book will save you a, a lot of a lot of time use that and then finally uh, I would have worked a whole lot more on my public prayers as a young minister because now I hear so many guys and their praying is absolutely awful in terms of it's the low spot of public worship um, I labor and our elders labor at our at our public praying and when people ask if you prepare your prayers I say I prepare 30, 40 hours to speak to the people of God, how much more should I not prepare to speak to God in in public worship? Those are the things I would work on hard as a young minister.
5: Ditto on every one of those. Uh, One of the things that we reform people tend to do is we, we love our books. And early in my ministry, having not had a, I didn't go to Bright, I didn't go to Greenville, went to Princeton and didn't have a great education. Uh, so I spent a lot of time. Uh, I went there, but they said Machen had left. I didn't understand that. Uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of time reading, and that was good. It was formative, but I didn't spend enough time with the people. And things didn't really start clicking in our church until I started, you know, visiting in their homes, spending time with them, getting to know them, even though they were way at the other end of the spectrum of where I thought they should be. It was the personal relationship building. And the danger is that we get so immersed in spending our time preparing all these things that are good and necessary, but we're not with the people. Uh, If we're going to bring about holiness unto the Lord in the lives of our people, we need to be in their homes. We need to get to know them it's relational so i wish i'd done more of that earlier
1: on gentlemen thank you so much would you all join me in thanking these men for their time and preparation today we've asked pastor dick davies to close our time in prayer after which we're going to sing the doxology sir
2: would you close us with a word of prayer Dear heavenly father we just thank you for this time we can meet together as brothers in christ We thank you for seminary students and for the calling that they have to serve you and your church. We thank you for those of us who have been in ministry for many years and for the blessing you've given to us to see lives change and people come to Christ. What a joy it is to minister the needs of people, to counsel them, to love them, to guide them, to see the fruit of Christ in their lives. We thank you for our church, the Presbyterian Church in America. And for our stand upon biblical integrity, we pray you'd bless our general assembly. We pray you'd bless pastors who faithfully preach and teach. That in this assembly that we with one voice would take a stand for biblical integrity, biblical morality. That our voice would come strong. That we stand upon Christ and him crucified. And we thank you. That's why we're here. We thank you for the eternal promises you make us in Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. We thank you, God, for blessing us. Thank you for saving faith. Thank you for grace and mercy, for rescuing us, lost, depraved sinners, and naming us as children of God. What a joy that is. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
0: You've been listening to a special joint production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education. For more information about Greenville Seminary, please visit gpts.edu. For more information about Bright, please visit brite-va.org. Thank you for tuning in, and God bless.